Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Hey kids, you're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn and this show is Fish Out of Agua with Michelle Carlo. We have a lot of show for you on this sun, sunny September day. Hey, it may not be sunny and it may not be September when you listen to it, but that's what it is for me today, and we're going to get right to it. And you thought that that fire alarm was jarring? Well, wait till you hear this. And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was Bite It, You Scum, from the late punk rocker Kevin Michael, 
Gigi Allen live at the former East Village music bar called The Space at Chase. And all that chaos that you heard in the background at the end, if you know who Gigi Allen was, you know that he was a wild dude. He made Iggy Pop look like a friggin' kindergartner. Like Iggy Pop used to like maybe break something and like get a little cut and like smear peanut butter on himself while he walked on people's hands. Well, Gigi Allen, he would break shit and he would roll around in it and then he would shit and piss on it and then he would throw up on it and then he would be like totally naked and just like big be flinging whatever he put on the floor onto people. And yeah, that's what people called punk back in the day, man. Well, now like hardcore. Oh my God. So yeah, that was probably going on. Um, in many bars in the East Village and Lower East Side back in the day. But now it's all cleaned up. Where once was a troll museum, now is a high-rise where the apartments go for $6,000 a month. Where once was a great Middle Eastern little place where you can get falafels and great lentil soup and where all the cab drivers used to go and fed many a person with... um, what kept many a person from getting their like Saturday night hangover is now another 40 story hangover, but that's another story for another time. And, um, like I said, we do have a lot of show for you today, and we're going to open this well, not open because we already opened it, but we're going to start the guest artist segment by this song, which was picked by our artist for this episode. Be in a land of make-believe, but don't believe 
And we're back on Radio Free Brooklyn with Fish Out of Agua. That was Green Day and Jesus of Suburbia from their 2004 album, American Idiot. And as for the Gigi Allen track that we really opened with, I have no idea when that came out. I'm going to say sometime in the early 90s because it was recorded live at the Space at Chase. So I don't know. You know, you can go on YouTube. You can go on the internets and you can look these things up. So anyway, yes, that was Green Day. And wow, that was like the longest song we've ever played. I didn't even realize that was a nine-minute song. But now it's time 
for my favorite part of the show. out of Agua's guest artist of the week. Woohoo! Oh my god, this is my favorite part of every show. Let me stop talking and introduce to you the very amazing, wonderful storyteller and all-around good guy human, David Hugh. Hi Michelle, I'm flattered. Oh, did I pronounce your last name right? You, pr you pronounce it perfectly. Oh my god, yay! Oh my <laughs> god, so I have to let you know that like you're just about like, I think only the second guy that I've had on this show. No, that's not true. Um, but yeah, I think I had like about four women on, five women on before you. Oh, wow. So, so, so it's like, good. We have, a different, we have a different perspective in the room today. Right, right. Um, so this is the question that I ask everybody yes. first. Um, so David, how did we meet? So we met in 2015 at Peter Michael Marino's class. Oh my God, you remember the year. Yes. Do, yeah, it, it was, was cold. It was the, yes, it was like February and it was the flying solo class. It was a flying solo class. And guess what? I was the only guy in the class. That's right. It was Jackie Peters, Dorit. Dorit, Missy. Missy. Crawford. Yeah, and then another Melissa. Yeah, it was another Nierman. woman, yes. Melissa Nierman. Nierman. And there was another woman that dropped out, or could it make it an older looking woman? Oh, well, I, well she okay, dropped yeah, out. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, I forgot about her as well. Yeah. It was an amazing class. And this was, that was like your entree into the world of storytelling? Or, was, or not? I was slowly getting my, we my feet wet, yes. It was kind of like one of the stepping stones to my storytelling career. Oh, wow. And yeah. how did you find out about the pit? How did I find out about the pit? Mm -hmm. I took an intro to storytelling class back in 2013. With whom? With Michelle Walson and David Crabb. Oh, oh wow. With David Crabb. Oh, my God. All these shout-outs. We're going to have to be tagging. So let's talk about you and how you got to where you are now. Where did David who get his start? Where, did you, where, where are you from? Okay, so I was born and raised in the Bronx. Yay! Yeah. Bronx! Woo, woo, the Boogie woo, Down. Woo. Yeah, One the of the boogie like, down. farthest boroughs in the five boroughs in New York City. Yep. Kind of almost like the redheads of stepchild, the five boroughs. Oh, hey, yeah. what, what's, what do you got against redheads? <laughs> not at all. I mean, hey, not... So I was born in a neighborhood called Fordham Road on oh, okay. Valentine's Avenue. So I lived here until I was five years old, five or seven years old, and I grew up in a neighborhood called Pelham Parkway, okay, which so is the northern part of the Bronx. We had Dorit Koenig on the show a few weeks earlier. And she's from the Bronx as well. And she is from Pelham Parkway also. Wow. Well, there's a lot yeah, to talk about I when know. it comes to the Bronx. Oh, yeah. You know, some neighborhoods are good, some neighborhoods are not good. That's but true. when you were a kid, um, did you did you want to become a performer? Was that on your radar at all? Like, what were you like when you were a kid? I was definitely shy and sheltered, and I was like really had a fear of talking to people. So I never had aspirations to become a performer. I just always wanted to get over my fear of public speaking mm. and talking to a large audience of people. And I had this fear for all my life. And I remember just like taking classes at work on being a better and effective speaker. But I feel like, you know, these classes were great on paper, but actually taking the classes, it just didn't work because classes were overcrowded and instructors were like dictators saying that what we should or shouldn't say when giving a speech or, you know, talking to people because the classes were so tailored 
to a corporate environment. Oh, yeah. And I felt more intimidated and just like overanalyzed what I wanted to say. And I just felt more of fear of engaging in public speaking. So one day I heard about something called storytelling or, you know, improv. So um, I took the improv class, level one, level two at the Magnet. I was totally scared as well. I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but um, I heard about something called storytelling. And I asked one of my best friends, Robbie Weinstein, who was my teaching assistant at the time for improv at the Magnet. And he told me that storytelling is pretty much, you know, sit around and a group of people, each one gets up on stage and tells a story, and then you sit back down and you just like critique it with other people. And I thought it just sounded like an overpriced sl- slumber party. But I mean, just the thought of the storytelling class oh, because oh, the price oh, of it. Yeah, exactly. So when it came to deciding where I should take storytelling, I was, you know, debating against the magnet or the people's improv theater because those were the only two schools right. that taught the course at the time and also story studios. Oh, right, right. Kevin yeah, Ellison's so Risk. Like, get the pit. And I saw the names David Crabb and Michelle Walson. I never heard of them before, but I did a search on both of their names and I saw David Crabb's video on YouTube. And, you know. And he's thought, a pretty yeah, amazing performer. Exactly. So, you know, I saw his video. It was pretty funny. And I said, hey, listen, you know, I'm going to give these instructors a shot. And I took the six week course and it definitely changed my life. And I decided I wanted to take the level two of storytelling. And after it took, like, level one, level two, I wanted to continue doing storytelling. But at the time, there wasn't many, like, open mics in the city. There was maybe, like, one or two. So we're just talking about it's, like, 2014. Yeah, so and, like, like, the like moth it, is not exactly an open mic. Exactly. <laughs> I didn't know what the moth was back wow. then. But it's, like, you know, I wanted to just, like, continue doing storytelling because it was, like, building up my confidence. I was, like, really feeling good just like you know engaging with different groups of people so back then I would just like you know just continue just refining my work and just going to Starbucks and just talking to the baristas or just talking to customers sitting around saying that you know hey do you have five minutes I'm working on a project and it's amazing that people actually listen so to you. So you would just like go and talk yeah. to random strangers? Just talk to random strangers. That is so cool and talk about overcoming fear of public speaking. I mean fear of public speaking is like I think one of the most prevalent fears with humans. I, I remember reading something somewhere that people would rather like basically put their feet in a bucket of water bugs uh-huh. or, or like ride naked around with spiders and snakes than get up in front of people. I mean, that seems pretty extreme to me. Yeah. But, like, but public speaking is like one of the most, the things that people are most af- afraid of. Right. And I, maybe because the first classes you took were structured in a corporate way that I guess that just didn't resonate with you although you do have a corporate kind of like background oh absolutely right I mean yeah. you, but you're like most of the people that I'm interviewing with are some kind of artist and they right. came to storytelling or they're doing film or music or whatever but they always wanted to be an artist and I know that your background is totally different which I think is one of the coolest friggin things ever so tell tell us a little bit about that like yeah, yeah. so in regards to school I went to college for a year in upstate New York called Oswego Stayed here for a year and a half, you know, I just couldn't take the cold, and it just got really homesick. What were you majoring in? I was undecided at the time. Oh, okay. But I was debating against, amazingly, anthropology. Really? Yeah. That's interesting, actually, and it's not corporate. I know, it's not corporate at all, because I do have a creative side to me. You know, I grew up, I liked drawing, and I liked painting growing up. Mm. It's also, my sister is very creative as well, so I chose anthropology or, or art. 
but my parents told me it's not something practical you want to do as a career. So they suggested maybe doing something with computers. And, you know, at that time, you know, computers were really becoming really big. So I decided to major in information systems, and I decided to transfer to SUNY Stony Brook because you have a better curriculum Mm. for that kind of major. And plus it was closer to home because I was literally about six hours away from home. Yeah. Yeah, I know. For some families, it's it's close that you don't go too far. You don't stray too far for exactly. school. I mean, my, my family was, my dad was pretty traditional Puerto Rican dad. Like, he didn't, he wanted me to go, he, you, know, you can go to college, but you're going to stay in the mm-hmm. city. You know what I mean? I was like, oh, what I did. I mean, you know. Oh, absolutely. Now that I'm an adult, I feel like wherever you go for education, it's the same thing. Yeah. It's, it's what you make out of it. Right. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. When when you get, you get to a certain point and it's like what, it's more about what you bring to whatever you're studying than what you're studying is going to be bringing to you. Sure. I definitely agree with that. Exactly. So, you know, I still want to keep up with it. You know, I just finished taking, like, you know, the core level one, level two of storytelling, and it's something called a storytelling show every Thursday at the Over the Eight Bar. Oh, I remember that yeah, place. Yeah, we with Lee. Yes. And her husband, like, Patrick, I believe. Yes, yes. So I started going to that, and it was, like, you know, maybe, like, three or four people, but it was just a good way for me to practice my existing material because you need to practice exactly you need yeah I mean, like anything else right it's like how do you get to carnegie hall True. Yeah. so it's like the art and storytelling was still new to me i mean i still had like severe writer's block i still had problems you know you know creating really compelling stories so i would be using just like the same stories i created in those classes over and over again mm. just like you know maybe see if i could refine it just keep it fresh you know is that build what, them with confidence were those stories what you brought to flying solo in the class we were in together it was the premise okay just be- flying solo yeah be- because the way I remember, I think, you know, me- memoir, everybody's memory is like their own, right? Oh, absolutely. But I remember seeing you, like, I don't know if blossom is the right word for, for a male. What the hell? You blossomed, David. You were just like, like from the beginning mm-hmm. of like the first time he had everybody get up to like when we did our showcase, it was like a different person. Oh, absolutely. Like you, like you, like it, it was like something either clicked in you or you clicked in it or you felt free or I don't know I don't know what because I didn't know you before right exactly but, but like I remember when when you first got up I was like I was thinking about oh this poor guy yeah yeah yeah, yeah. There <laughs> I'm you go. sorry it's the truth because like you didn't it's like you didn't know where to put your hands uh-huh. you didn't know where to look you you were you, you you were like tentative but like of course you're going to be you know what I mean because you this is like new still for you yeah especially for someone that doesn't have a performing background yeah. it was definitely what a huge learning curve for me and it's more difficult to perform in front of a small class that you're like four feet away from them and they're all like staring at you like this oh, than sure. it is to be in, in front of a room of strangers oh, I definitely agree so yeah. those are kind of like one of the, like the steep learning curves in me becoming a performer because so that was 2014 but I took the year I took storytelling really serious was 2015 and I remember that year I would go to like one moth a month and just try to do maybe like like two open mics, two open mics and one moth a month. And I got so engaged in it that I actually took a month off from work just to travel across the U.S. and do story slams. Yeah, that was that was amazing yeah. that you really went, like you went to, how many cities did you go to? I went to five different cities, including Which New ones? York City. Okay. So I went to Boston, Portland, Oregon, New York City, 
Asheville, North Carolina, and Denver, Colorado. Wow, and you did Moth Slams at each of those cities? I was picked three out of five. Oh, of those three cities. out of five, yeah. okay. But the fifth city, which was Denver, Colorado, I actually volunteered and helped them out with their story slam. But what was interesting about that story slam is that there was a lady in the audience who was kind of like on the fence if he wanted to tell a story or not. So I just told her, hey, listen, you have nothing to lose. You know, it's a five minute story. You know, just be yourself. And I convinced her to put her name in a hat, and she won that night. Wow, so you became a story coach without even knowing it. Exactly. I, it didn't, is... car, I didn't charge her a dime. <laughs> yeah. did, you, did you get her email? Maybe you could send her an invoice. No, I we're wish, kidding. I wish, yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> we funny. so but, kidding, um, kidding, kidding. I was happy that she won because I got so excited I forgot to put my name in a hat. <laughs> yeah. Wow. But, you know, did you see um, what your, the, the stories that you were telling, the themes or the direction of your stories did you have you seen them change from when you first started to now I definitely saw a change because I remember when I was doing this road trip I felt like before I took the trip I just kind of uh, workshopped two stories yeah the one was about your family one was about my family another one was about your friend yes yeah, exactly. I, I used to call that in my mind the bro story yeah yeah there you go, <laughs> there you go. perfect uh, perfect yeah. analogy yeah. but um I felt like back then I was still, you know, developing as a storyteller, but I haven't really got like the confidence or grasp to become like a really good storyteller. So I definitely, you know, was still messing up, but I was building up the confidence of taking risk. That's what was the well, most yeah. important. Well, yeah, and I wouldn't you. call it messing up. I'm yeah. gonna gonna call it exploring and finding your voice. Oh, absolutely. Because I think. Uh, not always, but sometimes when people first start out, and uh -huh. I'm going to say with any creative medium, yeah. you you see or hear someone that you admire or you like, and sometimes unconsciously, not that you like slavishly copy, but you try to pattern after it. Oh, you yeah. know, just 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 because you're trying to find out who you are, and you're like trying to like emulate it. You sure, know what I mean? sure. But at a certain point, you if you're going to progress, really progress, you need to break out and become yourself. Oh, absolutely. So, and that's the most difficult thing, is to really be your authentic self. I do agree, because 2015 was definitely like trying to find myself, and I felt like... Well, that road still, trip, yeah. that, that's like the quintessential like American like story. You know, going, go, like, young man goes in search of himself. Oh, it was great. I met some interesting people, and it's like I felt like through this trip, I was still trying to like squeeze out a laugh from the audience, which is not the way to do it. But what I learned after the trip was I actually got more engaged in my feelings with storytelling. Mm, I started, like how? Explain. I think um, after the road trip, I just started like thinking about you know times that are was vulnerable in my life, or you know low points in my life, and just started writing stories about that. Not just trying, not just being funny about it, but mm. just actually, actually writing like a serious story. Like I think one of the first serious stories I wrote about my 96-year-old grandmother who burned herself while cooking and she was in the hospital under life support and I think the doctors kind of gave us two options it's like we can do surgery but it's 95% chance that she may not make it if she is lucky she's going to be paralyzed for the rest of her life and she's going to be in pain and she won't be able to do the things that she would like to do and the second option is just take her off life support. And the thing is that the decision that my family made was to take her off life support because that's not the life she wanted to choose because 
before the accident and before she became old, she was like a vibrant person, loved cooking, loved being the center of attention, always loved moving around. And just to have her confined into a nursing home, not being able to move and be in pain for the rest of her life. Uh, we, uh, we did take her off life support. And I just felt like, you know, at first when I heard that decision, I thought it was wrong. But it made sense because she died peacefully. And I think, you know, now that she's an angel, she could spread her wings oh, and be free. Oh, she's up there with my yeah. abuela. Mm -hmm. they're, they're drinking tea together. No, actually, my grandma would be drinking cafe con leche. That's what she'd be drinking. <laughs> you know, my grandma loves cafe con leche as well. Cafe con yeah. leche, too. Yeah. All right, grandma's with the coffee. Woohoo! Yeah, exactly. So that was 2015, and 2016 was when I actually hit the ground running with storytelling. Really? I was, I was doing, like, two or three moths every month. Oh my God! To like That's three, a crazy schedule. Going three open mics every week. No, going to work. How right now? I'm going. To, we're going to get to your work, which is exactly what I wanted to talk about. I mean, you had like a real job. Like you worked in finance. Yeah. You had like a like I a, worked on the trading a, a, floor. A, a trading floor. I mean, you, you're like a bro. Well, were. Were, yeah, were. exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so that's a really responsible job. It's got a lot of pressure. You make you make bank, yeah, right? Yeah, big time. And to take as much time as you were taking to pursue what I think many in your profession would consider slightly unorthodox extracurricular activities, did you, was there any backlash there? Did you, were you able to let, did anyone at your job know what you were doing or did you have to like be on the down low with it? I was very adamant on what I was doing outside of work. So the catalyst for me taking storytelling to an extreme in 2016 was because the bonuses at my job was getting lower and lower. So the thing with Wall like, Street... What, what do you mean? Um, bonuses are a cash incentive that you get at the end of the year based on your performance. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that's why people that work on Wall Street, you know, you work the long hours and, you know, you bust your ass and you burn the midnight oil is for that big bonus at the end of the year. And I've been working on Wall Street for about 14 years. What's funny is that I never... Wall Street, Wall Street never crossed my mind as a career choice, huh. but a job is a job. Yeah, and you need, you know, you got to yeah, move exactly. out of, your, you want to move out of your mother's house, so like you, yeah. Right, and I actually did well at that job, so that's why I stayed there, because of the bonuses and, you know, just kind of like the rewards that were offered to me at the end of the year. But for the past few years, the bonuses just went down, and it just didn't make any sense to go the extra mile when you're not going to get that huge cash, cash payout right. at the end of the year. So I was adamant about what I was doing, and which is basically come into work late and leave on time, and you just you know go to the mall or you know go open mics. It's like people ask me, you know, hey, can you stay late? I would say, hey, listen, I got like a prior engagement. Whoa! Yeah. So Whoa. it's kind of funny because it's like you know when you have a job and you've been there for that so long. That takes balls, David. <laughs> a lot of balls. Yeah, huge balls. Go <laughs> How you do you go. say balls in Chinese? Gigi. Chi Gigi. Gigi. Like, like Gigi Allen, but Gigi. Okay. Oh, Gigi Allen. <laughs> yeah, it's like okay. Gigi. Not yeah. like Gigi Lee. <laughs> no, 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 no. Not like Gigi Lee. Yeah. Even though she uh, has cojones. Exactly. She has cojones, but yeah. Oh, but yeah. Anyway. She's a yeah, tough yeah. little woman. She's yeah, a tough exactly. little lady. Oh, yeah. Like, let's like, um, that, why oh, is it, what, Shakespeare plays it, like Midsummer's Night, Night's Dream? She may be little, but she be fierce. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Gigi Allen. Oh my God. Did you ever see him? Oh yeah. Oh, no. I actually I never saw him in person, but I saw his video. So there's a good story on how I learned about Gigi Allen. Oh my God. So it was junior year of high school. I remember I was hanging out at my friend's house. Tangent, was, tangent. It's a good story. So yeah, yeah. I was hanging out at my friend's house. Um, his name was John, and he had a friend named Alex. And Alex was a black kid that was like into like you know punk music. He had like the front two four two stickers on his book bag, and he had dressed all in black. He had the skinny jeans before the skinny jeans became popular, and he had these like Doc Martin boots. So he kind of stood out as like, wow, this guy is like you know, he stood out like a sore thumb. I mean, to me, he was like really cool. And this guy, you know, showed up one night at John's house, and he started talking about Gigi Allen. He said, yeah, man, we'll go see Gigi Allen last night. You know, this guy took a shit on stage. And he, and he rolled, rolled around the face. Yeah, exactly. Oh and I was, like, yes. I was like, what the fuck, dude? It's like, who is this guy? And he's like, yo, man, you don't know about Gigi Allen, bro. It's like, you know, what are you, sleeping under a rock? This guy is an idol, man. He brought a cassette tape that he recorded at the Gigi Allen show. Oh my God, cassettes. And he like put it in John's tape recorder and I just couldn't hear what the guy was saying. All I hear was like, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, of course, because he had shit in his mouth. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that's what happened. I put my hands around it, but I was just kind of curious about who this Gigi Allen guy was. Not to desecrate that man's memory. That that Talk about dedicating your entire self to your performance. So it's funny because I remember as a kid in high school, I didn't fit into the Bronx. And I remember like every weekend, I would just go hang out in the village. Why did you feel like you didn't fit in with the Bronx? Because I was Asian. Oh, okay. And plus, I was like into skateboarding and punk music. Oh, so I felt like that's something. Oh, skate, yeah. Yeah, uh, skateboarding is not something that traditionally Asian boys do. No, I don't more, think. More like tennis and piano. Yeah, yeah right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, was, violin. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, it's a wooden off. Or trigonometry. There, is it? Uh, getting to the stereotypes. I here, don't know. Yeah. I mean, I sucked in math, <laughs> but I was really good at drawing perfect squares and circles. My <laughs> artistic ability. But, um, so anyway, so. Uh, I heard about Gigi Allen, and I remember uh, they had a tape. I was walking around the village, and I walked by Kim's Underground, which was mm-hmm. a video store on St. Mark's yes. back in the days. Yes. And I saw Gigi Allen's hated in a glass case. And I in saw a glass th- case? Well, well, actually, behind a glass case. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. behind a glass case with mm-hmm. other, like, video cassettes. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah no, not like necessarily in the glass no, case. No, actually, yeah. I'm picturing like something like 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 um in case of emergency, break glass. Yeah, yeah, there so you, you go. Break the glass and you take the GG. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah, but it's like it just kind of fascinated me because the guy just looked like all bloody. It's like a microphone up to his face, and this guy's like naked and stuff. It's like who is this guy? Because I heard Alex talk about Gigi Allen. So the first time I saw Gigi Allen was actually sophomore year of college. Wow. And when I first saw that video, it's like, wow. It's like, it so was crazy. Maybe we could say then um, that Gigi Allen might have been one of your subconscious um, influences. A subconscious influence for you. Like, like, like giving your all and going all the way, even though you were maybe were not ready to do it and didn't know where you were going to be at that time. You know what? That's a good point. I think so. Because it's kind of like a guy that thought outside the envelope. Yeah, I mean, okay, and going back to you working uh, on Wall Street and your bonuses are being less and less, Uh and you're telling, you know, your your colleagues or your boss or whatever, that they're asking you if you can stay late, and you're like, nah, man, I got to go. Yeah. So, and then that didn't turn out too well, did it? It did not turn out too well. So, I'll put it this way. So, when you're at a company for so long, it feels like... Yeah, 14 years. Yeah, 14 years. That's a marriage. Actually, 12 years at this company, okay. but just 14 years 
on Wall Street in general? In the industry. All right, so 12 years at this company, it felt like a perfect marriage, but was toxic inside. Mm. And I felt like storytelling was an extra marital affair, like Ooh, knowing my mistress. The mistress. Exactly. It's like, you know, she understood my pain. <laughs> and she like, you know. My wife doesn't understand exactly. me. Exactly. Oh my God, that's so funny. It's like she understood my pain <laughs> and, you know, she was a good listener and she basically was supportive about me. She never told me should or shouldn't. Hmm. So that's And the why. wife was an egg? Yeah, exactly. Oh my God. Like micromanagement, you know, cheap. Oh my <laughs> God. So that's where... I was like so focused on storytelling, staying out late, you know, you know, after a show you want to have a drink and stuff like that. And you know, it's been having a great freaking time. Oh yeah, and actually won my first story slam that year. Yay! So it was that's right. Amazing year. Yep, yep, yep. But you know, people at work knew what I was doing and they just knew that, you know, I didn't really care or wasn't that enthusiastic or, anymore. Like your head wasn't in the game to Pretty use much. a business big, speak term? Yeah, big time, big time. So they were definitely giving me a hard time and this past March, I got laid off, and it was kind of like the best thing that happened to me. Yeah, it was yeah. a happy accident. Yeah, it was definitely. Why don't you get into that a little bit? Well, absolutely. So, um, so this past March, I got laid off from my you, job. You get laid off from your job, and they, but they gave you like severance and stuff. They gave right? me a severance. They gave me a nice severance package. Okay, good. Which I'm grateful which, for. Which finance companies will want to do? Oh, big time. Yeah, so that's yeah. good. So they definitely took care of me, and I was. Pretty much, you know, traveling, performing, and looking for a job for, you know, the next two months. Mm -hmm. Till one day, I get a letter in the mail in June mm. from my company letting me know that my health insurance is about to expire at the end of the month. And if I want to continue my plan, I need to let them know before the deadline. Oh, right, because of co cause you yeah. have to go on COBRA or yeah, something, exactly. but then that costs like thousands of dollars a month. It's about $700 yeah. a month. Yeah. So... I haven't had a physical in years because I was just so focused on my career. Yeah, and you're a guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I feel like, you know, we're kind of like unstoppable. So I scheduled a physical for the following afternoon. And during the examination, I remember the doctor was feeling my neck and he felt this huge lump on the right side of my neck. And I asked him, is it cancer? After the examination, he sent me upstairs to get a sonogram on my neck. And I remember just laying on this flat examination table as the nurse takes a barcode scanner and starts just rubbing across my neck. It was really uncomfortable and annoying because I don't like people. I have a phobia of people putting their hands on my neck. Mm. So I would just like jerk my head back and forth. So after the examination, they took a look at x-rays. And I see the doctor just talking to the nurse and he's like shaking his head. And he, he says, I don't think it's cancer but I'm no expert. So he referred me to a specialist. However, the specialist was booked till the end of August. And I told him, hey, listen, my health insurance is about to expire in a couple weeks. What should I do? And he told me, I wouldn't sweat it. I don't think it's cancer, I guess. So uh -oh. I didn't want to spend the whole summer wondering if I have cancer or not. So I went back home and I found a doctor online that was willing to see me the following week. Mm great guy and I explained to him my situation and he did he couldn't tell me if it was cancer or not because he didn't know me so he was just trying to like you know gather some information about me it's like you know when was the last time I had a physical you know um, have you had a lot of stress in your life I said yeah I worked on a training floor for the past 12 years trying to be as honest as possible mm -hmm. but he couldn't give me the answer I was looking for so he told me that I needed to go get a biopsy which is blood work 
So I scheduled the biopsy for the following week, got the blood work done, and scheduled an appointment with him a couple of days later. This is in April? This is in June. Oh, oh my God. Yeah, so June, June, the beginning yeah. of the summer. Beginning of summer. Oh. Yeah, so, so I remember that day of the appointment with my doctor was one of the busiest days of my life because I had a job interview in the morning. Mm-hmm. And that afternoon, I went over my blood results. And on June 22nd of this year, I was diagnosed with papillary thyroid cancer. What what does that actually mean? It's thyroid cancer. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. Oh my god. Oh my god. Yeah. David. So he just told me it's cancer. Oh my god. And I kind of felt a tingle through my body, but I wasn't scared that it was cancer. I was just scared that I'm going to go bankrupt trying to pay for this treatment. And he looked at me and he said, "You're lucky because you have good cancer." And I said, "Good cancer. What does that mean?" He said, "It's because it's a highly treatable cancer." but you need to get it removed as soon as possible. Oh, wow. So you refer me to head and neck surgeon, however, who's booked till the end of July. And I told him, hey, listen, my health insurance is about to expire next week. What should I do? And he looked at me and he says, Dave, I understand your situation. The best thing I could tell you is just give him a call and just be honest about it. And just let's just see if he could book you for an earlier date and time. He says, Dave, don't worry about it. It's just cancer, good cancer. Afternoon, I walked to the doctor's office and I spoke to his assistant and I told her, I just got diagnosed with cancer this afternoon and my health insurance is about to expire next week. Would it be possible if I could see the doctor at a sooner time? And she paused for a second and she said, one moment. And she scheduled me for appointment for the following week. Wow. And that was what, like the day before it expired? Yeah. Oh, my God. All right. So I met up with the doctor that afternoon. And on July 11th, I underwent a thyroidectomy, which is the removal of my whole thyroid. And they removed the cancerous tumor from my neck. So I would have never had the surgery if I didn't renew my health insurance. Luckily, I was covered for another six months based on my severance package, so I didn't have to pay a dime. Wow. Well, I, I guess your company ain't that happy about it. But, yeah, yeah, exactly. But it, oh, my God. I, but it's like, if you hadn't have lost your job, you would never have gone for the checkup. Oh, big time. And what's crazy about it is that two weeks after my surgery, I got a job offer. That's grandma looking out for you. Oh, big time. Big time. Big time. Big time. I'm sorry. I believe in all that woo-woo shit. No, oh yeah, my I gotta God. tell you, it was, it was a miracle. And so your your diet, so you, you're are you can are you considered cancer free now, or are they still like watching you? Or you're still in treatment. How, okay, how does that work? So, I had an appointment with my doctor two weeks after the surgery, mm-hmm. and we went over the pathology report. Right. So it was cancer. It was a two inch tumor that was slowly spreading, and he told me that it is a thirty to forty percent chance that the cancer can come back, but I need to carefully monitor it. Mm. So, you know, do biannual blood checks as well as get an annual physical. But I need to undergo radioactive treatment. What it is is you just basically take a tablet, and the tablet basically dilutes any cancer growing in your body. Well, are you going to glow? I'm kidding. Um, You know what? (laughs) So uh, I might glow, but one of uh, the prerequisites 
to getting this treatment is that you need to be on a low iodine diet for two weeks. I actually changed my diet, so I've been doing a lot of juicing and just eating a lot more vegetables as well as chicken, not fried, and white rice. Wow. So it's something I've been I'm going to continue doing. Well, I have to say, your skin looks great. Oh, thank you. Thank you. you know, <laughs> he is glowing. You, he, you're glowing now with before that, the radiation. Right, right. Thanks to my mom, <laughs> grateful, because my mom is in her mid-70s. and Do they still live in the Bronx? No. They still live, they in, the still live in the Bronx? They still live in the Bronx. Wow. My dad still live in the Bronx. Wow. And it's crazy. It's that during that month I was at my parents' house, I felt I really connected with them because I know that I go see my parents like maybe uh, once or twice a month. But I'm just usually like, texting my phone, just watching TV, or looking at Facebook. I never really had like a sit-down conversation with my mom and dad. So it definitely was different. And, you know, and it felt good to actually spend time with them for the past that couple weeks. That is just an yeah. incredible story. I, I'm just, like, floored. I mean, <laughs> my mom is an overbearing woman, and we definitely did bun heads yeah. still to this day. But I remember my last day in the Bronx, I kind of uh, started crying a little bit. That was going back to Brooklyn. Oh. Yeah. Mommy. Exactly. Mom What's her name? Uh, Terry. Terry. Shout out, Terry. You're awesome. Yeah. And my dad's name is George. Terry and George? Yeah. Woo. That's his American name. Yeah, right, right. Exactly. What, what, what are the Chinese names? My mom's Chinese name is Chi Hung. Chi Hung. And my dad's name is Yang Ming. Yang Ming. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, not like Yangling, but Yang Ming. Right, yeah, right. Exactly. Not, not like yeah. the beer. Exactly. Not like the beer. So uh, So what's co- co- um, coming up for you next? Uh, like, were you going to be performing anywhere soon? This interview will probably run in the later part of September. September shows, TBA. Okay, TBA. But I do have a moral, though. The moral to the story I told you. Yes. Okay, so every morning I wake up and I look in the mirror. I see that scar across my neck. And it reminds me on how lucky I am. Because getting laid off saved my life. Getting if laid I, off did save your life. If I never would have gotten fired, I would have never gotten a physical, and I would still be living with cancer today. In the next couple of years, I might have end up dead. Ay, jeez. Yeah. Adios, mio. And you know what? That little scar on your neck does look kind of like a smile. It does. It's, yeah. That's weird. That is just like so freaky deaky and metaphysical and woo-woo. I cannot, I cannot even. Oh, my God. It's funny because I remember I was talking to my uh, physician's assistant, that works with the, my surgeon. And she was saying that, yeah, you know, when you go on the sun, you may want to put, like, some sunblock on it so it's, like, the brown kind of, like, you know, kind mm-hmm. of dilutes. But I actually like the scar. <laughs> it actually kind of adds character yeah. because every morning I look at it, it's just kind of a reminder. Not that, all know, scars. You know, life is too short, yeah. Not all scars are painful, exactly. I guess. Exactly, yeah. It's <laughs> some, a reminder yeah. to, like, you know, definitely health and family comes first. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So if people want to find out about your fabulousness, do you have like a website or any any place where people can look you up? I have an Instagram page. Okay. So follow him on Instagram. And YouTube, but in regards to website, that sounds like a perfect idea. I just have to get Yeah, buy your name. Yeah. Get everybody should have their name as a, by their domain name because like yeah. Yeah. Okay, so one last one last yes. thing. If you had any advice for a child sitting in their top floor tenement walk-up apartment, in New York or California or anywhere in the world that doesn't know what they want to do, but they know they want to be creative, and how is it going to come out? What's the one thing that you would tell them? I would say don't listen to other people. Just do what you think is right. And I feel like, you know, definitely be a leader. Don't be a follower because I made that mistake where, you know, I try to emulate other people 
try to be someone I'm not, and it hurt me in the end. And you are just your own man today. Absolutely. Now, you absolutely are. I see it. I see it. In the, I mean, in the short time that I know you, I see the change. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Especially with getting diagnosed with cancer, definitely, you know. It's a life changer. Yeah. So when something like that happens to you, there's like there's you before and you after. And I'm very glad to know the David after. I feel like a new person. You are. Yeah. You're glowing. I am. You're glowing. All right. Thank you for being on Fish Out of Agua. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you.
That song was Change from Blind Melon's 1992's eponymous debut album. Yep, that song was picked by David for this episode, and change is the one constant we can expect. Seasons change, and people change. And sometimes your life can change in an instant. I've said this before, kids. Um, tomorrow is not promised. If you want to do something and you're sitting there thinking about it, get it out of your head and do it now. Do it yourself. Don't even, don't, just do it. Do it and eventually you will get better at it. Don't even worry about not being perfect. I mean, look at this show. It's not perfect. It's like total DIY, but look, I'm doing it. I'm getting people's stories out there and that just makes me so, so happy. Oh my God. Anyway, <laughs> you've been listening to Fish Out of Bavo with Michelle Carlo on Radio Free Brooklyn. And that's basically our show. If you like what you've heard today or on any other day, or if you love any of the other fine shows on Radio Free Brooklyn, sponsor us. Just go to um, the Radio Free Brooklyn homepage and look at the donate button. Well, um, stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next. And we're going to close with another song David picked and whose name has me really thinking that, yeah, summer is just about over. This is Undone, the sweater song from Weezer's 1994 album of the same name. So that's it, kids. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>